Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts, including people who live or work in contaminated zones, politicians who work with these communities to try to get solutions, firefighters who have worked with these chemicals for decades, fishing communities who have had to face closures because of pollution to their fishing environment, remediation experts, researchers who are trying to come up with solutions, scientists, medical professionals, toxicologists, hydrologists, the list goes on. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. I'll also be digging deep to answer the questions flying under the radar. And please feel free to send me your questions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Although season one of the podcast begins talking about the Williamtown raft based contamination, it will not be the only focus of this podcast. I'll be looking at broader issues of PFAS in Australia and also touching on what's happening globally. Because PFAS contamination is a global issue, it's even been found in polar bears. I had a really fascinating discussion with Associate Professor Robert Niven from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, and I can't wait to bring it to you. He has 28 years experience in all aspects of soil, groundwater, surface water, and air contamination, and also in contaminated site investigations, assessment, and remediation. He has real concerns about PFAS contamination and the scope of the problem. Let's not forget, these are firefighting compounds. Where do you fight flammable liquid fires? Well, you fight them in airports. So every airport in the country has been conducting fire training. They have fuel depots. They have uh, emergency incidents where they spray. So this is an obvious problem at every airport in Australia. The next problem is all these other potentially contaminated sites which have had PFASs used. And then let's pay attention to these consumer products that I mentioned. And we should do this all now. Let's not wait for 20 years like we did with asbestos. Let's examine all of this right now, this year, and deal with it. Robert, would you be able to just tell us a little bit about your background? You've got a huge background in remediation. So I have degrees in geology and chemistry and a PhD in uh, environmental and civil engineering. So I've been working on contaminant systems in soil and groundwater, surface waters, since around about 1990. I've dealt with many different contaminant types. In fact, cut my teeth in some of the um, big uh, contaminated sites in Sydney. So I have 28 years' experience in all aspects of soil, groundwater, surface water and air contamination, and in contaminated site investigations, assessment and remediation, and also um, quite a bit of experience in environmental management and in expert opinion. In that incredible experience there, how much of that has included anything at all to do with PFAS? PFASs are new. So this has come from left field. We've, of course, been aware of fluorinated compounds for a long time, but uh, this whole PFAS thing really came on the scene around about five or six years ago, caught us all by surprise, even people like myself. When you say five years ago, would you put the timeline as 2013? That's the sort of time frame where it really became prominent. There are warnings around about 10 years ago. So around about the 2006, 2007, there were some warnings. Publications in the literature, in the scientific literature, uh, warnings, for example, within the defence community about the use of firefighting compounds. So things were known. In fact, even if we go around about to the year 2000, things were known, but it wasn't perceived as a prominent problem at that time. When you think about the usage between, say, the early 2000s and now, Mm. and what perhaps could have been prevented, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's unfortunate. And it's just something that it takes a while for humans to change their systems. And it really does suggest that we have to be much better at our risk management and risk assessments and not necessarily take things at face value. So that is an interest of mine in this whole risk assessment and how do we assess the risks of new products and new contaminants which haven't really been examined in the scientific literature. How concerned are you about these chemicals? I am am very concerned. I see this as the next asbestos. I really do. And the fact 
that the contamination levels which have been published by Australian agencies are extremely low. You've got to remember they're much lower than heavy metals, they're much lower than lead. They're on par with some of the organochlorine pesticides and things which have been banned for many years. I see this as a significant issue. There's also concerns about links to cancer. Now, I'm not a toxicologist, so I can't really make any claim from my own expertise in that area, but there is anecdotal evidence, and I think this is something that is going to play out in the next 10, 20 years. So I do consider this a great concern. Why do you call it the new asbestos? Well, um, think about asbestos. So asbestos was used as a product around about 100 years ago it started it was seen as a great product because it was fireproof it was waterproof you could use it in cladding you could put it in cement products which then became fireproof and stronger so we used it also for strength Uh, it was used in every household in Australia practically that was constructed at that time yet even though this was happening by the 1960s there was evidence that there was a problem and it took from the 1960s approximately to what to the 1990s before uh, the society really came to reject asbestos and I see this playing out with fluorocarbons as well so so this is a very big issue. Let's look at the environmental impacts of this chemical why should we clean it up? That will be one of the questions that will play out of the extent to which we can clean some of these contaminant systems up so that will be a valid question but you've got to remember these fluorinated compounds attach very strongly to proteins. So that's the chemistry. And so they get absorbed very strongly in all kinds of biological systems. Then those organisms are subject to whatever the risks are. So we don't have a proper understanding. We don't have a full understanding of these risks. But it's something that fluorocarbons are not present in most ecological systems. They're a very different class of compounds. So if you're talking about something like heavy metals, well, heavy metals are in soil in very regions of the world at very high levels. So there are natural systems that have evolved to deal with those types of contaminants and cope with them. But fluorocarbons are entirely new class of compounds. So they're not present in biological systems, they're new. And so we therefore we're running into this possibility that we really are causing major changes to natural systems which we don't understand. Does that mean there's anything that can help break them down? Yeah. Now, I've just had some discussions with some people recently. There's some classes of flowers in Western Australia that do have some fluorinated compounds as part of their biological system. But these are what we call monofluoro compounds, so they have one fluorine atom. These PFAS compounds are completely saturated with fluorine atoms. So these fluorinated compounds that we're producing, we're manufacturing... Are toxic. Um, there's no, or as far as I'm aware, there's no biological system that can break them down. That's why they last for very long times in the environment, because they're not broken down. There are some biological species that are able to cope with some of these monofluorinated compounds, but this is a research question. We don't know how this is going to work. How do we then try and apply this in some sort of technology? This is an open question. Interesting. Um, It's okay for people listening for the first time maybe to this podcast or don't really know much about PFAS chemicals. What is a PFAS chemical? Okay, so the acronym stands for per and polyfluoralkyl substances. So what these are is a carbon chain. Um, So a carbon chain, like a typical sort of hydrocarbon, like... um, petrol or diesel or something like this but instead of having hydrogen atoms attached to carbon atoms the hydrogens have been replaced by fluorine atoms so you have a carbon fluorine molecule and then at the end of the chain there might be some other group so there might be some carboxyl group or sulfamate group or some other group so we've manufactured these compounds for various purposes these firefighting foams in particular have been manufactured so you have this carbon fluorine chain on one side and something that acts as a detergent on the other end of the chain and so you have detergent properties of these compounds and that's that's been the application to make these foams you need something like a detergent but there are many thousands of these compounds in the past five years we've made some regulations on three of these compounds 
but now we're understanding in manufactured fluorochemical products there are thousands of PFAS compounds we don't understand what they do we don't understand their properties let alone the impacts on the environment. So if there are thousands some might make the argument that because there's thousands of them how can we why should we bother regulating two or three of them? Yeah no that's true and this comes to our chemical risk assessments when we do chemical risk assessments the traditional method is you consider one compound by itself and what its impacts And that's how this has been regulated for the last 100 years. And what we really do need to get into more and more with our industry is how do we regulate classes of compounds? How do we conduct risk assessments based on things we don't know? Um, So this is an area of great interest to me uh, as a research question. It has to go out into the legal regulations and into society. Sometimes we have to make decisions about things we don't know. And that does not mean we should not make decisions until we know. Well, that's the precautionary principle, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Now, uh, the precautionary principle is of great interest to me because you hear this expression particularly amongst environmentalists and amongst, for example, the Green Party and so forth. It's used sort of as a a catch-all and a very nice catchy expression, but it doesn't have any meaning in the sense of legislation. Even though it's written in some legislation, it doesn't have a meaning. It doesn't have some mathematical concept which we can apply and what I'm interested in doing is taking that statement called the precautionary principle what does that mean mathematically how can we apply it because if you apply it strictly it means you can never do anything because you will never be prepared to take any risk so I see this as coming into a risk management framework where we have to be precautionary so The way I see that is we have to consider the use of probability theory, so apply probabilities to things and then do some sort of probabilistic risk assessment based on what we know and based on what are the possibilities of what we don't know. I've heard it said that PFAS doesn't actually like soil much. It doesn't cling to soil much. True or false? That's false. And again, we come back to this concept of PFAS as thousands of compounds with many different properties. So some will bind very strongly to soil particles, some will not, and they'll go in the groundwater phase. Some will, because they have detergent properties, they'll be found on the air-water interface, so on the top of the water table and in the unsaturated zone. So there's a whole lot of different things playing out with PFASs, and you've got to have this sort of multispectral phenomenon that it's not just one compound that's present and you don't just look for one compound. And, it, and PFAS, it is found in air as well. Is that right? It's, it, it's got atmospheric properties? It's not so common, but there are some PFASs that are volatile, yes. For residents maybe living in contamination zones and the dust on, they're very worried about the dust on yes. their properties. Yes. Should they be? Yes. The dust is an issue. So PFASs are attached to soil particles, particularly certain types of clays, and this has been recognised as a problem. So you have in particularly arid parts of Australia, this dust can be transported by, by wind, dries out. That can become a mechanism and people breathe in the dust and are exposed. So with the drought, watching all the farmers struggling and, and hearing that a lot of them are accessing groundwater or they've nearly used up groundwater in some locations. Are we doing enough as a country to protect our groundwater sources from contaminants like PFAS? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, Australia is a dry continent. We have very limited water supplies. And I have concerns in any case about use of groundwater. There's a lot of argument within the scientific community about, so we extract groundwater, and the, the idea always was that, well, that is replenished by rainwater somewhere else. But there's a lot of concern about that thinking. And some of the thinking now is suggests, well, possibly in some of our artesian waters, what we're doing is releasing water that's trapped in the rock and then it can never come back in once it's extracted. So there's a lot of this concern anyway. I agree we're probably not protecting our groundwater resources sufficiently. This is a very strong thing in other countries. So in the US, in parts of Europe, where groundwater is heavily used, they have much stronger protections of groundwater. And I'd like to see that play out more in Australia. Unfortunately, water regulation is a really fraught area in Australia. It really is. Why do you say that, Robert? We have weak regulatory agencies. We have very good national frameworks. We have very good documents. But some of those documents are just paper documents, and it doesn't seem that they're really 
policed sufficiently enough. And some of our state governments, I must say, have really emasculated some of their water regulatory agencies. And I'm particularly targeting New South Wales with this, with this challenge that uh, we're not doing enough. And I don't know why we're not doing enough. This is an important question. Politics shouldn't come into it. Unfortunately, it seems that it does. So you've had a number of these situations play out. So you have had PFAS contamination at some defence sites. Defence have done a lot and learned a lot in the past five or six years. But there's no borders in the environment. So we draw a border and we say, here is a defence base, which is Commonwealth land, and there's a border to the surrounding state. And those state government agencies have really been lacking. They really haven't done their job and they should have been doing their job, and they knew about this problem for many years without acting. And this is something that I just, I completely fail to understand how this has happened. So that's the New South Wales EPA in particular uh, on some of these PFAS sites. You have other situations with water regulation. We now have some problems with heavy metals in some of our water supplies in regional areas. And again, the regulations are present, the documents are present, the national framework is present, but the regulators themselves, the agencies are missing. They're missing in action. They're not initiating lawsuits. They're not preventing water supplies. They're not insisting that water supplies not be contaminated. And this worries me. I mean, how can we, in the 21st century, in an advanced economy, have a situation where some people are being exposed to contaminated drinking water and nobody does anything about it. Even the, even the agency that's responsible doesn't do anything. How can this happen? I think most people trust their water providers and they trust their government to be providing clean water, clean food for them to consume. We don't need to get onto food today, but people trust their government to provide clean water and should they be... I know. I mean, that's a good question. And like in the big cities, this problem doesn't play out just because of the population pressure. You appear to have very good, not just regulatory agencies, but very good water providers. You have good laboratories. You have proficient staff. They know what they're doing. Um, For example, I live in Canberra, and I have every confidence in the water supply here for this reason. And I know many of those people involved on, on either side, both the regulators and the regulated, and they understand things. But when you come into some regional areas of Australia, there seems to be some big gaps, and yet the state government agencies, the departments of health and the departments of environment, or whatever they're called in each state, they have the regulatory authority. In many cases, they don't seem to be exercising it. So do you think it's more of a concern, the water in regional than cities? Yes, yes. But as far as I know, and I have to do more research on this, I've only just touched the surface with the water providers, I'm going to do an episode. But as far as I know, I don't think that they're automatically screening for PFAS in water, but I'd have to check. But see, if you're a responsible water provider, you'll do that because that's that's now part of your job. This sort of information also should be published. So you should be, if you're a water provider, you should be publishing your laboratory results we should have open information. And that's part of the problem is the secrecy that, with which state governments have always surrounded themselves plays into this. We shouldn't have this secrecy. There's no need for this secrecy. Demonstrate to the people that you're doing the right job. It's not a difficult thing to do. Yeah, and then you've got the situation with water purifiers and, and people that mm. set up filtration systems. And I know a person personally who does this for a living. And I told him what I'm doing with PFAS. He said, what's PFAS? And I said, you set up water filtration systems and you've never heard of PFAS. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the message has to get out there. And I should mention too, so we're talking about PFASs from firefighting compounds and so forth as one of the potential sources. And this this is a big problem. But fluorinated compounds in general, they're heavily used in many industrial products. Um, so they use as coatings like Teflon and so forth. They use as waterproofings. So your Gore-Tex and all those sorts of products contain PFASs. There's a suggestion, which I'm not being able either to confirm or deny, but there's a suggestion that many of these compounds are used in cosmetics. They're used in lipsticks. They're used in uh, post-it notes. They're used in marker pens. And so they've gone right through a lot of our industrial products And now we realise we have a problem and we're going to have to come back and look at all these consumer products and really deal with it. And I don't think we should wait 10 years to do that. We should be doing this right now. Test every commercial product 
for fluorinated compounds and make some risk assessments. And the manufacturers, if you're selling sunscreen, you want to be sure you're not putting these compounds into your sunscreen. We should be doing our risk assessments, but perhaps what we should really be doing is really thinking very carefully about these compounds and do we need them at all in, in our water supply chain and in our food chain and in our chemical products. Okay, let's go back to your submission to the PFAS inquiry that happened in Australia between July and August and it will finish in Canberra in September. And you put in a submission number 38 and you said the PFAS problem in Australia is highly likely to be far larger than that associated with the Department of Defence. And you said it's rather astounding that the Australian news media have not made vigorous efforts to communicate this. Would you like yes. to expand on that? Yes, I'm, I'm critical of the media in Australia. And I think part of the problem is there seems to be a disconnect between journalism and science. There used to be lots of scientifically trained journalists, if you go back 20, 30 years ago. To me, this connection is obvious. It's completely obvious. I mean, here I am, I'm writing something to a parliamentary inquiry, which is not something I would usually choose to do. I'd rather be doing my science. But I felt it's particularly important to raise this question that, okay, your media can make all these um, articles about defence and scandals and things that have played out in the last 10 years and more, and that's fair enough, but let's not forget the next problem. The next problem is all these other potentially contaminated sites which have had PFASs used, which seem to be going under the carpet a little bit. They're not getting the attention they deserve. And then let's pay attention to these consumer products that I mentioned. And we should do this all now. Let's not wait for 20 years like we did with asbestos. Let's examine all of this right now, this year, and deal with it. Yeah, and when you talk about consumer products, they're not even on your extensive list no. there. You, mm. you list several sites, airports, airfields, port facilities, road tanker fuel loading facilities, for example. I sort of see this as sort of in several waves. So the first wave has been defence. They're a very prominent landowner. They've been using PFASs for many years. So they're the obvious sort of agency that's been caught first by this. And because they're so prominent and because they're engaged in so many Australian communities, they're wearing the problem on their sleeve, if you like. But let's not forget, these are firefighting compounds. Where do you fight flammable liquid fires? Well, you fight them in airports. So every airport in the country has been conducting fire training. They have fuel depots. They have... Uh, emergency incidents where they spray. So this is an obvious problem at every airport in Australia. And yet, by default, this seems to have fallen under the jurisdiction of Air Services Australia, who I must say, maybe they're trying to do a good job, but they probably don't really have the expertise to deal with this. But how many airports are there in Australia? Who's really assessing airport? Airports come under federal jurisdiction. So this is the Commonwealth Government who should be acting on this but then surrounding airports, there's land that's under council and state government jurisdiction. What are those organisations doing? What are they really doing to protect those local communities? This is a really big issue. And then if you add to that list, if you add anywhere that hydrocarbon fuels have been stored or manufactured, rail loading depots, fuel tanker loading depots, because, again, people will have been doing firefighting in these areas or doing firefighting training... Um, they would have been prepared for a chemical fire. That's a very obvious thing to be prepared for. Uh, if you look at many chemical manufacturing plants, you know, we probably don't manufacture as many chemicals as we did 30 years ago in Australia. So a lot of that industry has gone offshore. But nonetheless, we do have some of this industry. So what's the situation? What are the state government agencies doing? Where's the uh, openness? Where's the openness to the public to reassure the public that these agencies are doing something. Defence are doing this. Defence have one website where they're putting all their reports of PFAS investigations as a great resource for people who are interested in looking at this. They're even putting up disclosure documents. People have access through Freedom of Information and they've got a disclosure log and you can go there and look at all of those. But yes, we need it from all of these departments. Mm. As far as I understand, there's not even regulation around the removal of these PFAS waste products that are created when you try systems to remediate. There is waste products created like the granulated activated carbon, correct? And Defence have admitted they're storing it in their plastic containers in the big shed at Williamtown 
until they can find a licensed facility. But my question is, is there a licensed facility in Australia that can take PFAS waste products? Yeah, and this is something that we've not done well in Australia. So um, this played out with organochlorine pesticides that um, we had sort of ad hoc storages of different chlorinated compounds. Um, so the Orica site in Sydney had a vast storage of hexachlorobenzene. So we implemented some regulations which couldn't be met. And then the, the organisations that had these chemicals were then forced to sort of jump through a lot of hoops or not able to dispose. So, so you have to have a pathway. You have to create a pathway for effective destruction and disposal, if that's, this is what you're talking about here. I think this is going to play out. Certainly any agency like Defence, if they are storing granulated carbon and so forth that's contaminated with PFASs, they'll have to conduct their risk assessments on that storage. But we need some technologies for destroying PFASs, and this is a very open problem. These technologies have not really been developed to date. Well, I believe they have to be incinerated around at around 1,200 degrees Celsius. Um, I've heard that in the HEPA conference. One of the speakers there said he's not aware of any incinerator in Australia that could actually do this and not release the fluorine gases into the atmosphere. Yeah. Yes, and... See, I'd be worried about incineration anyway because you have all these organic byproducts, you're going to have hydrofluoric acid, you're going to have all these things. So although incineration might be one pathway, I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but there might be other pathways that might be better to encapsulate this fluorine, break down the PFAS compounds. So we'll see. But do you know of anywhere in Australia where PFAS waste products could be safely dumped or um, destroyed? I'd have to say it's not really my expertise to know where it could be dumped. I know the regulations around how it can be handled, but this is an open question. So we've constructed landfills based on certain categories of waste that are able to be delivered to landfill, but certainly we haven't designed our landfills for the handling of PFASs. So so this is something new. Now, PFASs almost certainly are in our existing landfills, it's got through the system. We weren't paying attention, so we've, we've missed this problem, which is a fault of all of us. But now that we are aware of this problem, we may have to go and retro-design landfills or, as you're suggesting, have dedicated landfills for low levels of PFAS waste. Um, so that might be one option. Another option is the destruction. Obviously, the destruction is a better solution. A landfill, all you're doing is you're just prolonging the problem and, and leaving it in place in a known location. So, Defence said at the Williamtown inquiry, if the soil has low levels of PFAS, it can be taken away and used elsewhere. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something, this will be answered by the people who do the risk assessments on contaminated soil. So, I mean, I think the answer is yes, it could be used somewhere else, but then you would have to be addressing the risk. So what is the risk of the PFAS is being leached from that soil, what are the risks of it being turned into airblown dust? So it would have to be encapsulated in some way. What's the lifetime of that encapsulation? So you, you're really talking about constructing a landfill or some sort of type of constructed environment with minimum opportunities for that soil to be released. But what's the lifetime of this structure? If it lasts for 100 years, the PFASs will still be there in 100 years. So because they're not broken down by biological processes, that's the problem. So are you just storing something for future generations to deal with? And that's the big question. Well, when they said it can be used elsewhere, I didn't get to question them. But I wondered, do they mean it would be used in people's gardens or for, la- or for landfill at your home when you want to put in a new driveway and you, you've got in some soil? That wouldn't be allowed. Use might be use in terms of, for example, a road construction or an embankment or something like this. This is what I think they might be talking about. But even in those situations, you know, really you're going to have to do a very careful risk assessment because those structures are not permanent. Um, you build an embankment, well, you might be rebuilding that in 50 or 100 years' time. Yeah, what's the lifetime of those sorts of structures? The PFASs will still be present after that time. They haven't gone anywhere. Are we going to do an asbestos thing where we just keep prolonging and delivering contamination to future generations to deal with? I mean, that's, that's not really a good answer.
Mm. With all of the things that we've talked about so far, if you could come up with the top things that the government should do to address PFAS, what would that be? That's a very interesting question. What I would suggest, first of all, is we have a national framework. So we have this Heads of EPA document, which was published earlier this year on PFAS's. So it's a commitment between the state and territory governments and the federal government about PFAS. It's a fine document. What we need to do is actually enact that document. Actually, the state governments in particular have to get busy. They're going to have to spend a couple of billion dollars. It's not going to be trivial. It's not a problem that can be swept under the carpet. There are many, many locations under state jurisdiction and even uh, under state control which um, have to be investigated. So, so I would imagine a great flurry in the same way that Defence has been spending a lot of money on investigations of their sites, state government agencies and also some federal agencies like Air Services Australia really need to get busy with these investigations. Um, we're also talking things like landfill sites. Um, some of this can be done very quickly and easily. So landfills, there will usually be a leachate collection system of landfills which is being monitored anyway for various releases of various contaminants. Add PFASs to that list. Make sure you know what's going on with various landfills. Then you might have to implement some controls if, if PFAS has turned out to be a problem. So my first suggestion is state governments in particular get busy and get open. Publish this information. There's a lot of potentially affected communities who deserve better. They deserve visibility of their state agency in trying to address these problems. Do not hide things. I know state governments love hiding information but it's not necessary. You really need to reassure the public and affected communities that this is not a problem, or if it is a problem, then it's being addressed. It's part of the honesty of government to say, well, look, we've screwed up, we've missed this problem, we can't change the past, but we can change the future, and we can try and change the future more quickly than we did, for example, with things like asbestos, which, which was a great disaster. So, so that would be my, the first on my list. The second on my list, we need to develop technologies um, we've developed a lot of um, methods for testing for PFAS and so forth. That's in order. Some of those things are very expensive, but that is a situation that has been dealt with. But what we don't have are technologies for treatment of sorry, PFAS-contaminated waters, PFAS-contaminated soils, and various other products that are going to be coming as a result of remediation methods. So, so we need to develop remediation methods. I have to declare in my answer to this question that I'm, a, I'm an co-inventor of a method for remediation of PFAS contaminated soils and I'm in collaboration through a federal government grant um, which has just been announced by the Australian Research Council uh, to develop this method and also to develop an, a related method for treatment of PFAS contaminated waters. So, so I certainly have an interest in this game, so I'm not a neutral party by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, many of these methods are just out there and they just need a bit of funding in order to establish whether they can work and then if they're able to be demonstrated at the laboratory scale, then that needs further funding to develop them for real field applications. Why is it so expensive to test for PFAS, with blood and in? Yes. Uh, isn't it $1,000 a sample? Well, it could be of that magnitude, 150 to 300 in soil, and yes, it could be getting up to 1,000 in, in some tests. Um, they have to use very specialised methods. Without trying to go and describe the technology, these are very expensive pieces of apparatus. They have to have very skilled personnel to be able to conduct these tests in order to detect PFAS as a very low concentration. So that's the reason why these things are so expensive. Now, many of us are trying to work on other methods for testing for PFASs, even screening methods. So this is a very active space, so don't think this is the last word. Uh, if there's any way of circumventing some of these costs, methods will be being developed, and not just in Australia but worldwide, in the context of a consumer product and if there were national regulations, for example, on PFAS content in consumer products, they would have to test. At the very least, there should be labelling. It can be in all these products and we don't know. Yeah. I see this playing out. In five years' time, you'll see PFAS-free on consumer products. But I'd rather accelerate that time frame and not be five years from now. It should be happening now. 
Now back to your research. Let's talk about your research mm. grant. Okay. I and my team have been successful in receiving a grant from the Australian Research Council. It was under a special scheme for PFASs, so it was a dedicated scheme. I have to say I really appreciate the actions of the Australian government in creating this scheme and giving us this opportunity. And so in my particular case, so we have $900,000 for two years. Um, I'm working in association with academics at my institution at UNSW, other academics at Macquarie University, and with a company, OPEC Systems, for developing these two technologies. So one method for cleanup of contaminated soil and another method for cleanup of contaminated waters. One of the method is uh, for treatment of PFAS contaminated waters. It's called foam fractionation. Essentially, this involves the use of injection of air into the water and various other proprietary additives in order to generate a foam. I mean, you've got to remember these compounds were firefighting foams, so they very naturally will form a foam. And then you just get into the realm of separating out the foam and you have treated water. There'll still be some PFASs present in that treated water and so the reason why we need the funding is to really try and develop this method, try and look at the combinations of various additives, look at things like flow rates and so forth. So there's lots of variables. Um, what's coming out in the treated water, what's coming out in the foam, can we do the mass balances? So can we uh, account for where the PFASs are going and can this method deal with different PFAS types. So commonly there are two main compounds, PFOA and PFOS, which are present in PFASs and different contaminated sites have different ratios of these compounds. I did mention that there are also thousands of other PFAS compounds as well. And we've got short and long chain. That's right. So we really have to do a lot of experimentation to really understand this method and how it will work. But the company with which I'm working is called OPEC Systems. They have developed this technology. They're involved in a number of projects with defence for treatment of various waters, as well as we wanted to try and develop the method for treatment of groundwater in the ground. And so that will be one of the avenues of that research. Defence have said that treating the groundwater is difficult. Is that true? It's, it's much more difficult than treating surface water? Yes, it is. But groundwater treatment anyway of any contaminant is a problem, it's difficult. Why? So you have some kind of sandy medium or something like this. The groundwater is flowing through that soil medium and let's say you put a borehole in. So you drill a hole in the ground, put in a well, pump the groundwater. There's a lot of problems associated with how well connected that well is to the surrounding groundwater. How efficient can you ever be in removing something that's moving past the well. Groundwater doesn't flow in a uniform manner. It'll flow more rapidly through some parts. If some of the soil is a little bit more permeable, it'll be flowing more rapidly through those areas. It'll be flowing less rapidly through others. So you, we call this heterogeneity. So, so there's a lot of heterogeneities in a natural soil or a natural rock formation. And how do you get contamination that is in one of these pockets. So if it's zipping through really rapidly through a more permeable formation, maybe that's easier to extract if you happen to drill through that. But what about some of these lower permeability zones? How can you reach them? How can you access them? And so it's for this reason, for example, with petroleum hydrocarbons, pumping of groundwater is not seen as the answer for cleanup of a contaminated site. You have all these difficulties of pumping of groundwater. This is something that I've spent my whole career working on these problems. So these are things that are known of. So the statement that treatment of groundwater is a problem, it's not so much once you have water in a well, that's not the problem. It's getting the PFAS into the well and having sufficient connectivity through your formation so that you can be confident that you're recovering the groundwater. You can never be fully efficient. And they brought up the fact at the Oki hearing that it's unrealistic to think that they can ever remove every molecule of PFAS. Would that be a fair statement? That's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. And that's played out with every other contaminant class that we know about. So it's not specific to PFASs. If it was heavy metals dissolving groundwater, you still have the same problem. Mm. And they said they're going to start looking more at the aquifer and studying the aquifer and the way, the way, the way it moves and flows. I haven't got the technology. Looking at the aquifer, a fair use yes. of their time? Yes, yes. And, 
And so that will be embedded in a risk assessment framework, essentially. Every site will be different. So you look at the aquifer from the point of view of what are the risks to ecological Mm -hmm. communities, what are the risks to human health by various pathways. This is also a standard method. So this is, again, these are the sorts of things that the contaminated site industry, if you like, are very familiar with. Um, we have a lot of expertise in Australia on this whole thing. So, so I think we can be confident that we'll get some good results out of this. But, okay. yeah, you can never clean a contaminated site. That's, that really is a good, good comment to make. Okay. What's the second technology? Okay, so the second technology, um, and this is something just incidentally I worked on for my PhD. So I co-invented a technology called in-situ fluidisation, and this is for clean-up of contaminated soil. And so what this is, is you actually fluidize the soil, so you liquefy the soil. So you turn the soil into a quicksand with the use of water and possibly also injection of air. So you have this liquefied zone of soil and then contaminants are washed out by this fluidization process. So, so you wash out things like petroleum hydrocarbons float so they're washed out things like clays if they're present in the soil they're washed out of the soil and then if there's anything that's attached to those clay particles that will also be washed out i didn't study pfas 20 years ago when i did my phd but i'm pretty confident that um, based on some preliminary results that pfas also will be washed out by this process we have to do some laboratory experiments. The, the first question is if it will work or not, and then the second question will be, well, what are the parameters? How do we operate this in the field? How do we actually do this? Do we need some additives? What are the flow rates? What are the complications? Uh, what's the effect of different soil types? So there's a lot of things to be done as part of this research project. And then at the end of this project, we have the, the soil treatment method and the groundwater treatment method, and we hope to synthesise these two methods into a combined method for treatment of soil and groundwater at PFAS contaminated sites. Is there anyone else doing similar work to those two methods that you've just described? The water method, I, I don't know this, but I imagine that there will be many groups, we're talking worldwide, there will be many groups worldwide who are working on methods of this nature. The fluidization method, I'm not aware of any other group worldwide. So we're the only ones, as far as I'm aware. And it's a big deal because isn't remediation of soil much harder than, than anything else? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And that's part of the reason why we developed this method so many years ago was remediation of contaminated soil is a big problem. It's somewhat interesting to come back to the same thing on which I worked for my PhD after so many years and for a different application. And to me, this really answers an argument, why should we fund fundamental science? The answer to that is, one of the answers to that is, you end up developing a whole lot of expertise and methods which might have some application for some future problem that you're not even aware of. And so that, to me, is a really great argument for funding of science. Why? Because we have in a back pocket a whole lot of different things and capabilities, and when a new problem emerges, like this PFAS problem, we've got some capability we didn't know we had. So how many people will be working on this project with you, Robert? It's a team of seven academics and a company with the funding. We'll have a team of around about 20 people, both on the university side and also on the company side, to work on these methods. Will it be conducted here at the University of New South Wales in Canberra? Yes, yes. So UNSW Canberra, as part of our team, we also have the involvement of UNSW in Sydney and Macquarie University in Sydney. And the company has offices in several states, so will be a collaborative effort, uh, interstate effort. Hmm. Now, what about biosolids? Are you familiar with PFAS in biosolids? Is that out of your area? Do you want to explain what you mean by a biosolid? Well, I've read about PFAS in biosolids, which are then used on agriculture. Waste products, sorry, from sewerage, isn't it? Don't they use recycled waste? So biosolids, by your definition, is some solid of biological material which is then used as a fertiliser on farmland. And so traditionally what we've done is we've taken things like sewage, sludge, and dried that out and formed this... They call it a cake. It's a very delicious cake, I'm sure. So so a sewage cake, um, which is then dried out and then used on farmland. And in some ways, many environmentalists would be very happy with this kind of idea because it's returning these solids back 
to the land and not just sort of discharging them into the oceans and having a recycling function. So from many points of view, this is seen as a very good thing. But what we know in the industry is that particularly sewage also contains many other things other than human waste. It contains things like heavy metals and so forth. And there's been this concern for many, many years that these biosolids are returning things like heavy metals to agricultural land. There's been a long concern about this for for decades. I'm interested to hear, I haven't heard previously about the possibility of PFAS's being incorporated into this material. And, And that's, to me, that's a very good question. And if there's that concern, we should be testing. We should have national regulations. It should come under agricultural and food regulations um, in the same way that any other product would, would have. Can I just ask you a question about land farming? Now, what's your understanding of land farming as a bioremediation technology? Okay, well, I think the sense that you're using this is that you're using some piece of land you're putting some contaminated soil onto that land or maybe the soil is already present on that land and then you're trying to stimulate some biological activity to break down those contaminants or to encapsulate them in some form is i think that's that's correct so if you took soil out of say a fire training pit no doubt would have had pfas's in it because it's 1997 in australia which have been found to have the highest levels of PFAS. Mm-hmm. Um, and you take the soil out. The excavated soil in this situation was added to the stockpile of contaminated soil on site. And the contaminated soil was land farmed on site. This involves spreading the soil to a height of approximately one metre. The soil was turned once a week for eight weeks during the process of land farming. The hydrocarbons in the contaminated soil undergo biological degradation Mm. Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that for an area that could have PFAS in it? No that's a a very interesting question. These sorts of things were conducted and are still conducted for treatment of hydrocarbons so the idea is you have some petroleum hydrocarbons like diesel or petrol, you do this land farming commonly you'll see this, if you see a service station site that's being remediated you'll see soil piled up and people will come week to week and conduct some tests and maybe they'll add some nutrients and turn the soil around. And then with time, the hydrocarbons are broken down. That's fine. All that stuff is fine. But with PFASs, PFASs are not broken down by any biological process that we know about. So if this method was used for soil that was contaminated with PFASs, PFASs will still be there. And if this soil was left on site, they'll still be there. They might have been remobilised. If the soil was reused for some purpose, then you'd have to worry about where that soil has gone. So the PFASs will still be present. That example Mm. was a defence site, the Army Aviation Centre in Oki, which everybody knows is contaminated. But that is what they did in 1997 to remediate an old fire training area. Maybe it was the practice of the day? In those days, they were not looking for PFAS. They didn't know about PFAS. They might have just been, they would have done some tests, you analyse. So you, you always got to remember, you only test for what you think could be there. So you test for diesel compounds or various petroleum hydrocarbons, you'll get a result. Uh, and then you can go and do your remediation, that's fine. But if PFASs were present, and probably they were, then that's something they missed. But they might not, they might have done that in, in ignorance. Yeah, so they might have done it in ignorance. It was, it was the best... There's the best understanding of the soil at that time, possibly. You can call it legacy contamination. There have been many contaminated sites that have been cleaned up and developed for housing in Australia in the past 20, 30 years. Obviously, we have great pressure on our land, particularly in our cities. And now, perhaps, we really need to revisit some of these sites. If, if there is a suggestion that PFASs were present, well, we certainly weren't looking for PFASs 20 years ago. So those methods might not be appropriate for what we know now. Again, this is my what I urge of state government agencies. Go and look. Go and check these things. Maybe we need to do some further investigations of some of these sites, particularly things like sites like this particular one that you're referring to where there clearly was a fire fighting training um, area. Uh, this is very obviously something that's associated mm. with PFAS. Mm. Do you think in 1997 they would have known of the toxicity of PFAS? It really wasn't talked about till the early it 2000s? Wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't known. And 
I know you might find this very surprising, but um, in the industry, the field of contaminant hydrogeology in which I'm practicing uh, is really a very new field. So it's really come from since the Second World War and particularly since the 1970s this field has been developed. Where there's a lot of things that have, we've learned within my lifetime, we've learned about different types of contaminant classes. And right. so we're still learning. And so it, this is not a new science by any stretch of the imagination. And for that reason, yes, we're going to make have made some mistakes. It's unfortunate, but that's that's just the nature of science. When you talk about the housing sites, I know because I've studied it, Defence have so many old munition factories, and we don't need to go into this too much, but they've done remediation there, and again, investigations, and PFAS was never in any of those reports that I was reading, so because they probably were not looking for yeah. it. Yeah. And then we've got housing estates with people living on these areas. Mm. Um, should they be investigated for PFAS? Yes, they should. Yes, they should, definitely. And you can do this in a sensible manner. Probably the compounds are associated with each other, so if there's a spillage of the PFASs, that may have been associated with a hydrocarbon spill because that's what they would have been doing. They would have been spilling some fuel, sending it on a fire, and then spraying PFAS. So you might find these things in association. So the fact they've been cleaned up for some classes of contaminants might be a good thing. It, the problem might have been addressed, but we don't know that. We can't assert that. We can't claim that until we actually test that. As I've kept saying, we have some very good national regulations. We have some very good documents. We've got this Heads of EPA document. We've had similar collaborations by the every Australian health minister, so the NHealth documents. But what we don't have is a very good framework for action and in particular in the federal sphere. So the Department of Environment and Energy is responsible for essentially the regulation of contaminated land which falls under Commonwealth jurisdiction. So that is, if you look up, there's a document called the Administrative Arrangements Order. They have the legal authority to police certain acts of Parliament, but they're not appearing in any way to be exercising this function. They are the regulator and they're not regulating. And so defence contaminated sites, by default, are really being regulated by defence. Uh, airports, by default, are being regulated by Air Services of Australia. And there'll be a host of other Commonwealth sites as well that fall under various other departments. And one thing I would very much like to see is the creation of a a Commonwealth EPA, so a Commonwealth regulatory agency just for environmental contamination, which will have similar um, statutory duties as one of the state EPAs, and they become the regulator. And then we'll have a separation of powers between the regulator and the regulated. And we've seen this in many other contexts, for example, in banks, uh, the banking industry, it's very important to have this separation. So this is really critical for um, giving confidence to the Australian people that these things are being conducted properly. Mm. And, and another point to this is that it's very inefficient to scatter expertise across defence and air services and various other agencies, each creating their own sort of little, little unit or cell which has to do with PFASs. It'd be much more efficient for the Commonwealth Government to have one set of uh, organisation in a, in a federal EPA and then you'd have consistency nationally and federal EPA would be able to work with uh, the equivalent state bodies when there's a, a problem of jurisdiction, when contaminants are moving from federal to state land for example. So it would have a very clear regulatory framework and that's something I'd very much like to see. I'm trying to be minimalist and if you read my submission to the Parliament I'm just advocating a federal agency just for the purpose of regulation of Commonwealth land. I'm not necessarily trying to reproduce a US EPA type of agency here, even though that probably would be a good thing because they would then provide national leadership. It's interesting that you say that you talk about the Department of Environment and Energy and their, their ability to regulate in some way activities of the Commonwealth. Mm. Have I got that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Because the PFAS task force has just been transferred back to them. It's come out of the portfolio of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. Uh -huh. okay. So it was getting a whole-of-government mm. response. Okay. But it's now gone back to Department of Environment and Energy. Now, politicians are saying not a good thing. 
So it's interesting to hear this responsibility is going to this Department of Environment and Energy. Okay, that's fine. But is it just going to sit there? Are they actually going to do anything? Are they going to set up a regulatory agency, which is a very different thing, because then what they'll have to be doing is they, for each of these airport sites, for example, or for each of these defence sites, they should be hiring an environmental auditor. Uh, They should be going through the environmental auditor process of peer review of all of these reports. These are things we do for any contaminated site, but they're not being done for PFAS sites, and Mm. I don't understand why they're not being done. But what seems to be is the regulator is missing, and by default, departments are doing their own regulation, but that's not really how you do these things properly. Mm. The residents have a big complaint because all of defence money, all the government money, is being spent on re- remediating, you know, some remediation on defence bases and they're not doing anything off base. How important is it that they start to remediate the contaminated properties that have been been covered in floodwaters that were polluted yes. for decades? Yeah. This is a big problem. And I think part of the problem is that we don't really have methods to do this. And so how do, you, how do you clean up a contaminated property if you don't have methods? So unfortunately, we're still part of the learning curve, the, the first part of the curve of trying to figure out what methods will work. And I know that's not going to assure the residents, but there can be controls that are implemented. I mean, we have done things like blanket controls on preventing residents from using their own groundwater and things like this. They're, they're the sort of the first level of controls, but... I agree that we need to be going out to these communities and trying to work with the communities, trying to identify what are the highest risks and addressing those risks now. Don't let it play out for 10 years before you do anything. And that, unfortunately, seems to be how Australia does things. So we had, in the 1990s, we had some concerns and serious concerns with some chlorinated solvent contamination in various places, like the Orica site in Sydney, And the regulators, because we didn't have the technologies, the regulators sort of sat on their hands for 10, 20 years. And let's not see this play out again for these impact communities. The impact is real and this needs attention now. So I do agree that we can do something even if we can't do everything now. Okay, and last thing about defence regulating themselves as the polluter... Um, who's who's had a lot of freedom uh, and responsibility, of course, mm. but the freedom to regulate themselves in their clean-up methods and what methods they choose, they might become the standard practice, but it might not be the best solution for PFAS. So what are your thoughts on them leading mm. the way? And, and do you think everybody in industry is just waiting to see what defence finally settle on and then they'll copy? Yeah, I mean, that's it. They're the... They're the landowner with the deep pockets and this seems to be how things are playing out. And, okay, so we need some diversity of of methods and diversity of views, sure. And that's a a very good comment, very good question. So I don't have an answer, really, to that question. Um, This is the way these things have played out historically. There's a lot of pressure on defence now. They're developing methods, as you say. And there's a lot of things going on in that sort of clean-up industry. So there's some very big tenders that are being let at present by defence. And what's going to happen in the next five years is there'll be some players will establish themselves with certain technologies in those fields. This is just how science works, science and industry works. So we can't really help that. But if there were some independent organisation like a Commonwealth EPA, they could scrutinise some of those things. Mm. Robert, thank you for talking to me today. Is there anything else you want to add? Australia is actually very far ahead in the PFAS curve in our science. We have the potential to develop some technologies for assessment and for remediation of PFASs, and then these technologies can be things that, when these other countries catch up, uh, they can be export technologies. So, so this is, in some ways, this is part of my dream is to is to be able to help the world. And Australia is in a very good position to do this. We're limited by funding. This is always a problem for us as is in an academic environment is lack of funding. But fortunately, through both defence and now through Australian Research Council, there's quite a bit of funding that's been awarded. Um, I would hope there would be more funding than this. But the funding is there, the opportunities are there to develop some technologies and now people like myself have to get to work and work on these things. Yes, there will be sites that are not cleaned up because it's too expensive, 
But if people like myself can develop some methods, at least to address the areas of the highest risk, that will provide the solution. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, that's all. And it's been a very interesting discussion. So thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode of Talking PFAS. Professor Martin Kirk is the lead researcher of the PFAS Health Study being conducted at the Australian National University in Canberra. The study is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health. I caught up with him to discuss the PFAS Health Study and also where he thought further research was needed. I think if we're going to get better handle on things, one area of research that probably needs to be done better is the highly exposed populations, because in general that's where you're going to see overt health effects. I think that's certainly an area. I also think that some of the areas we identified in our study that had limited evidence in the systematic review, that is worth further investigation. So those particular aspects of health, so around cholesterol and kidney disease and some of those cancers and probably also um, the immunological responses to vaccines. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.